0: and am I giving you your name right?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we have more of an English sized version of it, and it's Wiest. Aha. Wiest, okay, yep. I'll do that again.
0: I'm here today with Joshua Wiest, who is an instructor at the Triangle Sword Guild, focusing on the fighting systems of masters Achille Morozzo, Giovanni D'Alagochie, Antonio Mancellino and Camillo Palladini. That's a lot of Italians. <laughs> He's also a successful tournament fencer and host of the historical martial arts podcast, L'Arte dell'Armi. So clearly something of an Italophile. (laughs) Anyway, without further ado, Joshua, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Guy.
0: Uh, Whereabouts are you?
1: I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, in the United States. Yeah.
0: I once got stuck in the airport there for about nine hours. Really? I did. Why? Um, (laughs) uh, I was living in Peru at the time, and uh, this is when I was a teenager. And I forget if it was on the way to... Peru or on the way back but I but flights got cancelled and changed and moved around and I ended up having to like wait in Raleigh North Carolina actually Raleigh Durham is the airport isn't it
1: it is yeah yeah
0: the only reason I know that is because I was in it for like nine hours about 33 years ago (laughs)
1: <laughs> and cursing <laughs> raleigh much. durham the entire time <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it actually has yeah no it's changed a lot it's a lot nicer now um that's okay. not as uh just like one terminal it's and uh, they've built a new one and it's beautiful so ah uh, well i didn't do that in time
0: not not, not so no. for me <laughs> <laughs> i seem to remember sleeping on the floor great <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> but I'm, I'm but let's let's not be deterred by my one not so great experience at Raleigh. is is it a nice place to be
1: yeah no i mean it's um it's it's a great city um it's sort of stuck between uh an equal drive to the mountains and an equal drive to the ocean, so um okay. you know you have convenience of um basically exploring whatever you want to explore if you're kind of a beach person you have the beach and if you if you're a mountain person you can go hang out in the mountains and you know i mean the whole state is basically a a deciduous rainforest so um it's it's beautiful a lot of trees
0: lovely okay um so are you from there
1: i am yeah so i um my my family's not originally from here they're from the midwest but um i grew up here I've, i've lived here my entire life
0: Okay, um, so how did you get started in historical martial arts? I mean, is is there a lot of that going on in North Carolina? Yeah,
1: uh, <laughs> so um, it's pretty funny. Um, you know, I'm I'm an avid listener of your podcast, and I feel Aww. like <laughs> I feel like a common theme, <laughs> a common theme that I've heard from your guests is that they started writing a book and they never finished it. Or or something along those lines, sure. and um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna add to your pile of, of like authors that never c- quite fulfilled that ambition. Um, I was I was writing a book, a uh, historical fiction novel um, about uh, Epaminondas, who's a a Boeotian general um, right after the uh, the Peloponnesian War, um, and uh, I was I was writing this one scene in the book, and he had basically been relegated back to um he had been removed from the Boeotian government and was forced to sort of like reinvent himself um in the city uh, when they had just overthrown the Spartans and um i got to this scene where he's working with Gorgidas to form the sacred band and they are training these guys to use weapons and i was like i have no idea how to use any of these weapons <laughs> and I was like, okay. I need to, I need to, I need to rectify the situation. This is, uh, yeah, this I is agree.
0: a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Okay. So,
1: um, I've always, I've always been a big, uh, very passionate about history. Um, it's, it's not what I do for my profession. Um, I'm a medical laboratory scientist and I work in a hospital, but, um, history has always been my sort of, uh, driving force and, uh, okay. And so I, I decided I needed to, to do something about it, so I started doing some research. I looked into just doing Olympic fencing, and, um, or, or sport fencing, and um, I found a school, and then through that school, I found a uh, group of historical martial artists. I found the Triangle Sword Guild, and uh, I actually started doing rapier first. Um, okay, it's a good place to start. It, it was, yeah. And it, it actually worked because my historical interest at the time, even though I was writing this book and doing a ton of research on, you know, the uh, sort of the Corinthian war period of, um, of Greece, um, I, <laughs> I was also at the same time uh, reading Peter Wilson's 30 years war book um, mm-hmm. and uh, which is a fantastic book. And so I was doing this deep dive on the 30 years war and reading about the 80 years war and learning rapier at that time was, was perfect. So um, I got into that, and then our rapier program basically ground to a halt. And in its place, um, a new instructor came in and started teaching Bolognese, and the rest is history. I just kind of stuck with it.
0: Okay. So you're learning rapier to get insight into uh, ancient Greek warfare. That's (laughs) interesting.
1: (laughs) Well... (laughs) So uh,
0: interesting, interesting.
1: Okay. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> let me clarify. So <laughs> at the time, at the time when I started, um, the the way that TSG handles their beginner classes for two handed mm-hmm. sword, um, for long sword, which is what I was going to be doing, um, is uh, they they basically. Um, do blocks where they'll open up beginner classes like every two months, just because Mm -hmm. there is a lot of interest in the area. So to keep the beginner classes at a reasonable size that they can work with, um, they, they keep them in two month blocks. So I was waiting for one of those blocks to open and I did start two handed sword. Um, they, they actually created a class on a Thursday because I worked weekends at the hospital. So Mm -hmm. all the weekend classes I couldn't take, but the weekday classes are what I was trying to sort of fit into. And, um, and so I, I did do a little bit of KDF for a while, but then that class kind of fell through. One of our instructors that was teaching that class ended up having surgery. Um, and so I really, at that point, I was just sort of pigeonholed into the Bolognese system, which was, you know, fateful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, yeah, lot, lots to unpack there, because
0: actually thinking about it, with the Bolognese sources, you do get shields, yep. carriages, yeah. bucklers, Pole arms. Yep. Right. So it's probably closer to being useful for doing your Peloponnesian war um, stuff than because effect would be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the more um, I've gotten into the Bolognese system, the more I've heard, even from other practitioners, that, you know, there are times where either Morazzo or Manciolino are basically cosplaying the Greeks. With, when yeah. they start using, like, Partisan and Rotella. <laughs> <I> mean, right.
0: <laughs> and, you know, I, I have I have a copy of the 1568 Morozzo yeah. here. I, I
1: have, actually, the
0: 1568, well, like, an original.
1: Right. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could take it out and wave it to the camera, but, but the people <laughs> listening can't see it, so that's not really fair. Um, and it's got some very strange arms and armor in it yep. in the pictures. It's like... Why on earth are they carrying out? And you're right, yeah, they're basically cosplaying the classical period.
1: They are. I mean, and I mean, with especially with Manchilino in particular, he's like, he goes on these long, like, humanist diatribes where he just like he's throwing out all of the knowledge that he sort of gained. And, and you know, you think about the context of the time writing and probably starting sometime in in the. Uh, early 16th century, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the height or well, sort of the tail end of the Italian Renaissance. Um, and he's, he's really just kind of like flexing his literary muscles, you know, just like showing everybody that he's this like knowledgeable scholar of of humanism. Um, and uh, it, it's pretty funny. Um, and it it just kind of, it feeds that narrative, you know, it feeds the narrative that he's just, <laughs> some of this stuff, we're not really sure how practical it is, but, you know, Sure. Yeah. He's, he's definitely <laughs> cosplaying the Greeks.
0: Okay. So for the non-specialist listener, um, when they think Bolognese, they're going to think spaghetti and mm-hmm. we get this all the time. So could you just, just explain to the, to the lay person, what is this Bolognese system we're talking about? Where does it come from? What is it about? Sure. Okay.
1: So, um, the Bolognese system is basically, um, a, a, something that we use to categorize um, a system of fighting because it uses common language. Um, that's the best way to put it. Um, there are a lot of very intelligent people um, who really kind of postulate that there's more of an, a northern Italian system and then the Bolognese system just sort of exists within that framework. Um, but the one thing that we have that unifies the Bolognese system and makes it easiest e- easier for us to understand is that um, we have this we have these uh, five principal treatises that use the same language uh, for the names of their guards, their cuts, um, mm-hmm. thrusts, etc. Um, and that's really what we sort of categorize as the Bolognese system. It exists for about um, 100 years, roughly, um, between really the start of the, the, the entirety of the 16th century is where we, we're, we're kind of looking with the Bolognese system.
0: Okay, and where does it come from?
1: It comes from Bologna, Bologna, Italy. Okay, but I mean. Oh,
0: okay. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that even our lay people figure that much out. But uh, yeah,
1: sure.
0: It has antecedents um, with this Dardi or Bardi fellow.
1: Yeah, so Filippo Dardi um, is is widely considered sort of the uh, the father of the Bolognese system, and then um, he has a prospective student. Um, uh, De Luca, who Morazzo um, says that like DeLuca more more brilliant swordsmen came from the belly uh, or came from De Luca than Greeks came from the belly of the Trojan horse is what right. Morazzo says about him, which is um you know. I have somebody attitude.
0: somebody will hopefully say that about one of us one day.
1: I absolutely yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I, I, I mean, think as they're... instructors, that's what you want. <laughs> isn't it? It is. It is absolutely. But you know, I mean the Bolognese system, the cool thing about it is um throughout this period we we have we have historical anecdotes really because of the sort of the documentation of some of these fencing masters that we we have these stories of of fencers um and, and Vigiani's a a good source for that but you know, a lot of times these guys will start name dropping. Um so, you know, we've got um let's see, we've got Giovanni della um Giovanni de Medici, uh, Giovanni della right? Um, mm-hmm. We have Guido Rangoni, who's sort of mentioned as a practitioner of uh, the Bolognese system. He was a condottieri um, during the Italian Wars. Um, He's the person that Murazzo, uh dedicated his treatise to, um, and uh, and then we have more people like uh, uh, Francisco Maria della Rovere um, and Count Hugo. Um, and so basically
0: we're, we're talking if you're into the Italian 16th century we're talking about rock stars effectively
1: yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. and, I mean, and
0: Sciorri does the same thing you know he, he claims for example uh, Galeazzo da Mantua as one of his students and then goes on about how Galeazzo beat Bussico in in a duel um, Bussico being Marshal of France at the time and so like top knight in Europe if you like so so basically what is doing is pretty much the same thing it's like these people think I'm cool. Therefore, you should too. <laughs> yeah. <effectively. laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and that that brings up an interesting point because you, you kind of wonder, and and this is something that i thought a lot about. Um, I feel like we get this prevalence of fencing treatises, or at least we see the development of systems um, after periods of long war. So with Fiore, for example, he's almost a contemporary of the great captains. Well, he is a contemporary of the great captains in the age of, you know, you have John Hawkwood and um, you have the, the Golden Company and you have the White Company running around in Italy. And then um, and then you get Fiore and you have the development of this system. Um, and we see this system sort of developed and spread out throughout Europe. Um, well, not Europe, but Italy. Um, I guess you're a little bit into Germany. But um, with the Italian with the Bolognese system, it, it comes. We see the writings really kind of start um, in about the 1520s. Uh, we don't really know when the Anonimo Bolognese was written, but we know that with um, at least from Manchilino and Morazzo, we can date those into the 1530s for their publication. Um, and they come at the heels of the Italian wars. So we have these, uh, we have this sort of this this flowering of these ideas that really come and are born of conflict
0: okay so I mean as, if I remember rightly I think Manciolino's book came out in 1531 wasn't it something like that and he's, he's sort of the first of the printed Italian yeah. sources correct yeah okay yeah I actually was in an, an Italian bookshop about six years ago in Verona and they had a, get get this they had a note, but it's worse it's worse than that right i went in and in italian i asked them if they had any historical fencing treatises and they said no we don't and so i gave them my card and said you know if you find any just you know, if, you, if you come across any let me know right and later that night at dinner my wife and I are having dinner in a restaurant in Verona, just on the streets because it's, you know, summer and it's nice and there we are. And this guy from the bookshop comes up and he says, Ah, yeah. Um, he, he was super polite. I think he called me Maestro Windsor, because he looked me up on my <laughs> oh yeah, historical fences, oh that's really nice. He was super polite night. and nice. Um, and because he wasn't actually there when I was in the shop. His assistant was there. He said, we have a Manchelino. Are you here on Monday? Right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, we've gone back to, we've gone home by then. Oh no, (laughs) no. (laughs) So I didn't see it, I didn't see it. And uh, honestly, they were were asking significantly more money than I had available for it. So I was never going to buy it anyway. But yes, I could at least have handled it.
1: (laughs) uh, There's actually a Manchelino for purchase right now and they're asking for... yeah, there they're asking for $7,000. Where is it? Uh, I found it on Goodreads. Um, It's through an auction website. Yep. Okay. (sighs) $7,000? $7,000. Mm-hmm. I know. I know.
0: (laughs) Oh, it would go so (laughs) nicely with my Marazzo. It would, yeah.
1: You you got (laughs) to... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh God. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let me have a little think about that. Okay. It's I'm, I, so I have two kidneys. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was, when I was, uh, on my podcast, when I was talking to Michael Chidester, um, he, uh, I was like, I was really pressing Michael. I was like, "Listen, we need a facsimile of Murazzo," and he was like, "Look, if you can, if you can find a facsimile of Murazzo that has margin notes, I'll consider it." And so he's tasked okay. the Greater Hema community to go out and find a Murazzo with margin notes, sort of like what he's doing with the Meyer right now. Yeah, and um, and in the process, he was talking about potentially doing a copy of Manciolino instead because he likes Manciolino because it's tiny. Yeah. And, yes, uh, um, it's tiny. It's a tiny little book. Which I think is, I think it's kind of cool. Like, I i, I think it's great. It's like, you it's know, it's a pocketbook. Yeah. It is. It's a pocketbook. You just kind of put it in there. And it's, and like, all it's this...
0: like six inches by four or something. I mean, it is really small.
1: Yeah. Which is, it's cool. Cause he, he even has like really condensed advice that's just like really great stuff. Like,
0: uh, hang on. Hang on. Um, you want a facsimile of Marotta Yes. Does it matter which edition? No. Okay. Well, I have high-resolution photographs of not the first edition, but my edition, which is the 1568, and uh, Malcolm Fair's copy of the 1540, the undated one. Mm -hmm. Producing a facsimile from those is not difficult. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I, I, honestly, I don't think the average listener will be terribly interested in the nitty-gritty of us discussing exactly how we would proceed with that.
1: Yeah, um, we'll have to talk about that some more time. <laughs> so maybe
0: but... maybe, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll chat about it after we've done recording. But, but in all seriousness, I mean the data is there.
1: Yeah, so no. We'll I... have to,
0: the process is just clean up the images,
1: mm-hmm.
0: arrange them into a print file, add a sort of about this book page at the end, I mean if you if you tell me there's a market for it I could just get it done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean I've through my my years of of study, I've I've really come to the the solid conclusion that if you're not reading a a translation and comparing it to like the native language, the native Italian and then comparing it again <laughs> to like the the actual text itself, Mm-hmm. Um, then you're you're gonna miss things because there there are certain things that just are absolutely essential to really kind of understand. Like if you if you run into something that's hard to understand, a lot of times you have to start referencing the other source material and yeah. kind of build that out. So,
0: well, my view is that if you're getting paid for your opinion, it should be based on the original. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not reasonable to expect you know amateurs in a club who happen to be teaching because they happen to be the most senior person present or the most experienced and, you know, it's not their job, it's just, you know, something they do at the weekends and what have you. It's perfectly all right in that situation to be basing your interpretation on translations, Mm -hmm. right? Because learning the language is hard and it takes a long time and it's a tedious process and personally, I I suck at it. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) But, you know, I the, the reason I don't teach any um, German sourcemanship other than 133 is that I don't I don't read German well enough or at all in fact to to base my interpretation on that um, 133 is a dodgy one because I am dependent on translation mm-hmm. but I have like six years of Latin at school or five years of Latin at school so mm. I have just enough Latin that I, could, I can go in and have a little dig yeah but that's, that's an edge case. I probably shouldn't really be teaching 133 based on my own sort of principle of you should be able to read the original <laughs> language. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I do like Fiori and Capoferro and some English sources and some French sources because I can read those, but I don't do the German stuff because I can't read German. And because this is my job, I feel I, if I'm teaching a, you know, if I was teaching a Lichtenauer seminar, I ought to be able to read the original language and I can't, so I don't.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I, I just got done uh, teaching, going on a sort of a deep dive in a study of uh, Andre Lignitzer, um, and I had to I had to rely on, on the German speakers in our club and the people who could basically go in and, and take a look at the Middle High German and compare it to the translations that were available, which, I mean, there's some absolutely fantastic translations. Right. Um, but, you know, it was, it was actually really beneficial um, to go back in and look at the language because, like, with Lignitzer in particular, um, you know, he's got these situations where um, sometimes he'll use plurals for things um, instead of a singular when he's talking about shields. And, you know, in the German system, a lot of times they'll refer to sort of the lower half of the sword as the shield. And so he'll say something along the lines of, um, you know, uh, Dirk Vexel um, underneath their shilts right? And he puts an S on there, but sometimes that gets lost in translation. You'd be surprised how many translations there are of *Lingnitzer*, where they forget that S. And so they just say Dirk Vexel under the shield instead of the shields, which changes the play significantly. So just a little anecdote. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's, and I mean, I've only published one translation and that was a Vadi. And my first stab at it was shockingly bad. And fortunately it got picked up and um, I did a second crack, which was much, much better. Right. (laughs) But it's, it's astonishingly hard to do it well. And you are always making that these sorts of decisions about, Mm -hmm. okay, we could translate it like this or like that. And there's nothing in this source to make it one way or the other. And so you're still always making these judgment calls and that's, that's the problem. Yeah. Like language languages aren't ciphers of each other. They're they're different ways of seeing the world.
1: Yeah. And and that's why you, you just need somebody who has that context that can help inform you. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I got your I thirty three class for your one thirty three class. Um and and oh, signed the, up for
0: it. Yeah. Oh the online course.
1: I did, yeah. So oh, I, brilliant. <laughs> so one of one of my uh one of my pursuits that sort of came out of um out of the uh the pandemic was i started teaching uh sword and buckler almost yeah. like an exclusive sword and buckler class mm-hmm. so and the framework of that class one of the things that i'm doing is teaching from all the sources so we run in um i think it's like 40 40 week cycles so we'll do 40 weeks of manchi sword and large buckler and then mm-hmm. we'll do 40 weeks of 133 and lignitzer and tall because tall is really that's, simple
0: that's He's got like three (laughs) Butler plays.
1: Yeah. And then he's like, (laughs) I've, I've read, I he's, and then he actually mentions that he's read a treatise with a priest teaching these plays in Latin. So does he say that I wasn't
0: aware? Oh my God. I need to reread Talofa. It's been 20 years since I looked at Talofa. Well,
1: so in a, in a couple of the different manuals that he's, he's, um, he's put out, he, he mentions, so in two of them, I think in like the Württemberg, um, and then, his personal manuscript I don't know what the name of that one is I, I just remember on Wicton Hour it's named his personal manuscript so that's okay. what I go by if if, my, if it's good enough for Michael it's good enough for me um, yeah but, and,
0: and we'll stick links <laughs> to these things in the show notes so people yeah. can
1: find them so he he mentions that those two things are um, like in those two treatises he, see, he actually has sword and buckler plays and he, he gives you about six roughly mm-hmm. um, in this like continuation and some of them are, are kind of obscure but then um, in his other treatises, he just has that, that sort of that name drop of having seen something with a priest, um, with sword okay. and buckler. And he says that he understands it, which so that's all he says. It's just like one picture and this block of text that says, I've seen this and I understand it. And that's it. So I don't know.
0: <laughs> okay. well, to, to be honest, I mean, it took me a while to get to grips with 133. Um, I think I worked on it for about six months before I taught a class on it. But it's not a complicated system.
1: It's not, but it's brilliant. It's
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it and it's, has so much in common with all the other systems.
1: Yeah. When I was reading about your approach to it, um, I realized that we were following similar veins in terms of how we were understanding the approach of 133. And then I was like, okay, this is perfect. Because as much as I would love to dedicate a ton of time to really kind of developing my own system and understanding of 133 sometimes when you're focused in other areas you can continue to focus in those areas and rely on the hard work of other people
0: (laughs) (laughs) right absolutely um, I I, I do I I have a pretty solid grasp of the Lichtenar material because friends and colleagues have taught me their grasp of it and it's 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 never going to be perfect of course it's not but then if I did it myself it wouldn't be perfect either right so but it's it's enough that it kind of informs and develops your understanding of your own specialization, um, and you don't end up getting siloed into this pathetically small little. I only do Italian. <laughs> exactly. So, kind of like, <laughs> you know? um, and, but yeah, it's 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 this this is normal academic. Well, I mean, you're a scientist, right? You, mm-hmm. you, and the scientific stuff that you do is probably drawn from a lot of other people's work. Like, I mean, I, I don't suppose you invented Absolutely. all of the different reagents and tests and things that you do, did you? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish, but I know. <laughs> no. Right. So yeah. So, so using other people's work is like, it's, it's how we, it's how we develop at a reasonable pace. I mean, if you if you have to invent everything from scratch, you're going to, stuck in the Stone Age for a very long time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I agree.
0: Okay, well, when you've done the course, I'll be interested to hear what you think of it. Um yeah. so you know, and and you can be frank. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I'll be honest, I promise. <laughs> um okay, so alright, we've mentioned Vadi a couple of times, just for people who may not be familiar, Vadi wrote a treatise in around 1480s. Um for the Duke of Urbino, and it has a lot of common commonalities with Fiore, and it may have some commonalities with some of the Bolognese stuff. And it is knightly combat. It's a manuscript, so it's not a printed source. There's only one copy of it that we know, of, which is in the Biblioteca Nazionale uh, di Roma, so the National Library in Rome. Um, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Vadi because, as a you know, as an Italian file, you pretty much have to be. But what do you think the relationship is between Vadi and the other sources?
1: And the, the yeah, so sources? I've about a year and a half ago, I got really frustrated with Moranzo's two handed sword. So I can understand that. <laughs> I <laughs> looked it, at it,
0: he's not very clear.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I was also, you know, I, I started to kind of get this feeling that Moranzo. In, in the way that he teaches the two-handed sword, um, I wasn't quite sure about the martiality of his approach. So oftentimes the Bolognese um, masters or, or writers will um, sort of identify the things that they think should be done in the saddle and the things that they think would be done with sharp swords in earnest. Um, yeah. And so I'm not I wasn't quite sure how much of a in earnest uh, approach Marazzo was providing. Um and not that that depreciates what he's teaching by any no. means, but it was more of trying to understand whether or not it was um and and I've heard about this about Vadi too where, you know, Vadi's basically writing this lo- like forlorn love letter to the two-handed sword as it's fading out in its relevance. Um and is basically just kind of like we don't know if he actually used it. Um and I kind of got a similar feeling about Murazzo, and I wasn't quite sure. So I decided to really start looking into it. Um, and to, to do that, I needed to do two things and that was study Fiore and study Vadi. Um, right. And so I started studying, uh, Fiori and, um, I'm actually working through Fiore right now. Um, again, co-opting ideas from other people. Um, you know, we have an instructor in our school, uh, Kurt Holfreder, who is um I know Kurt, yeah. He's had some yeah. private lessons with me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he's he's a fantastic fencer. But, you know, he's he's gone on this quest to really kind of understand and, and implement Fiori. And I've been working with him and um and it's been fantastic because I'm starting to see all these like little similarities, these sort of things that provide these distant echoes of, of aspects of things where I'm like could that be, you know, and and that's the scientific process, right? You start asking questions and you start wondering things and you start exploring, going down all these little rabbit holes to see if there's any sort of validity to what it is that you think, right? Um, and that's really kind of what I've been doing. Like, does Murato call Gordie De Entreri Gordie De Entreri, uh, where he's up in. Uh, you know, for for German people, it would be up in Left Flug, um, or you could say it would be in uh, Fenestra for the the Fiore folks. Um,
0: Ooh, I'm not sure Guardia di is Fenestra. Oh, that's no, a bit it's of not. a contentious no. statement.
1: So, no, 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 it's not Fenestra. It's so, definitely not Fenestra. And, and I'm talking in terms of just like what the guard looks like, right? In yeah, terms okay. of like the posture. But right, I'm teasing you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> But here's the thing. This is, what, this, is the, this is the rabbit trail that I went down. Is Gordia de Entreri Gordia de Entreri? Because Moranzo is basically trying to convey Copo de Villiano. Why? Why? Because he's, coming, he's basically doing a hanging parry where he's coming up underneath. And then he has narrow stance, which is where mm-hmm. you're just bringing your sword up. And if you look at the angle, he's got his sword all the way down. And then he's stepping out with his back mm-hmm. foot and then he's stepping in and closing.
0: Okay. One second. I'm just going to dig out my And I'm going to have a look for myself. And I'll stick a photograph in the show notes so that the uh, listeners can join in. Yes. There we go. All right. Guadalupe di entrere. Dole. Okay. This is, this is my 1568. So it looks like you're going to get a look That's at it. beautiful. Henry. <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? It needs, I think it needs rebinding. It's, it's uh, got a 19th century binding on it, but the, the print's original. I'm uh, in pretty good neck. Uh, here we go. Okay. Guardia di Entrere, non in Largo Paso, and we have Guardia di Intrari in Largo Paso. Which one
1: are you referring to? Uh, so I'm wondering if that's a continuation, right? So basically, okay. it's—he's the way that he uses Guardia di Entrere is usually going to be a way of, of parrying so you're kind of getting up underneath somebody's sword and the idea would be that you're entering because you're getting around to their outside line um,
0: Ah, that's an interesting idea Yeah. Okay, let, let me just describe it for the listeners, so imagine if, this, if you're both right-handed and you're both coming from the right-hand side and the swords are crossed and your opponent is pushing your weapon quite strongly towards your right side, if you lift your hands and let the point drop, their sword flies off to the side and you get effectively a variation on Fiori's Corporate Villano, as you said. So you're seeing it not as um sort of a guard, but more as a waypoint.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the reason is the guard of entering is you're the out if you can get to somebody's outside line um, right. the, and and you're sort of pressing the advantage, then you're always going to have you're going to have the availability control because when you close to strata from that place um you have all sorts of things that you can do you can um you know from from that outside line you can push a thrust you can go for a grapple um but it's a good way it's a safe way of entering because then you can turn their body too right you're starting to turn their hips away from you um and and then you're closing in on them so you're kind of refocusing
0: that's interesting. Okay. So bringing, bringing that back to Vadi, mm-hmm. what is, what, what do you think the connection is?
1: So the reason why I, I think that Morazzo is, is I think Morazzo's is co-opting ideas. Um, I, I don't know how, I don't know how genuine he is in his just like development of the system or if this is him co-opting ideas. Now, it, it kind of has to go back a little bit to a story <laughs> about Morazzo. Yeah. So like when we talked earlier, um, we were talking about Guido Rangoni, right? Um, and Morazzo in particular, you know, he, he dedicates his treatise to Guido Rangoni, but Guido Rangoni was not the lord of Bologna at the time when Morazzo was writing. So why would he write to Guido Rangoni? Because he probably had a personal relationship with Guido Rangoni. Because the DS days at that time when Morazzo was writing had basically been given power by from the Pope to be in charge of Bologna. The, the Rangone family had been removed um, from power in Bologna. And so the fact that he's writing to the son of a, a noble who's been removed from power in the city of which he's writing <laughs> is pretty curious, right?
0: That is very curious, yeah.
1: But it kind of leads you to the understanding that there might be more to this, right? And so again, the, the idea that these things are, are generally born of, of war, you know, Guido Rangoni was a condottieri, and Morazzo calls himself a master of arms. And this is all speculative. I mean, there's nothing to, to prove any of this, but, um, I would love to prove it, but it, that would be a, like a PhD level <laughs> research. <laughs> and I wish I had time to do it, but, um, you know, with, with, uh, with Guido Rangoni in particular, um, we know that he was pretty active in the Italian wars. Um, there's actually, uh, Christopher Hare's book, *The Romance of the Medici Warrior*, um, it has this really awesome, <laughs> this really awesome story. Uh, it's it, which is a book about Giovanni della Bandinari where uh, Giovanni della Bandinelli's um, uh, black bands ended up uh, basically having to work alongside Guido Rangoni when Guido Rangoni was given the charge of protecting Italy right before the sack of Rome, right? So you have this this German mercenary army that's coming down, um, that are unpaid and just literally just wreaking havoc and wrecking all of Italy, and uh, and so Guido Rangoni's given command to try to stop this this uh, attacking force, and um, Giovanni della Bandinari is basically acting as his sort of forward um, scout and harassing the Germans um, as they're coming down. But either way, um, in that uh Giovanni della had it documents that Giovanni della wrote a letter um to a friend of his and basically he just smack talks Guido Rangoni the entire time for having like these really undisciplined troops who didn't know what they were doing. They said he was, they were fat and lazy and like that <laughs> that they were just hey. awful, right? yeah, And I thought that was great. Um and, but to bring this all back to to Vati, um is that I think my my estimation is that Moranzo probably was uh, associated with Guido Rangoni in some way. Um, and that, that's where he sort of got a lot of these ideas. And I think he's co-opting ideas where, if you look at his two-handed sword, he's even co-opting ideas from uh, Pietro Monti. Like he does, Ooh. he basically does things that are the levada, right? Like if you look at uh, his, um, the second assault of the two-handed sword, he starts out by doing the levada. Uh, he says that you cut a um, a falso Drito and then a falso um a falso manco, And it's I mean he's in my mind that's what he's doing. And I know that other people have theories and we've got this debate going on in the Bolognese community about what that actually is. Um mm-hmm. but I think he's I think he's showing the levada and I think he's co opting ideas. I think Just he's pulling all these things together.
0: Go for ahead. the one or two people listening who have not read Pietro Monte and memorized every word. There's only going to be a couple of them. Um, yeah. What is the levata?
1: So the levata is basically where you throw a rising cut um, from from like a, so it's a rising false edge cut. And so you mm-hmm. kind of flick your hands over um, and, and snap the false edge of the sword at somebody's hands. So you throw these rising cuts and then snap the sword at their hands and then you turn on the other side and you flick and snap the sword at their hands. So, that's so it's it's, it's a
0: false false rising cut from the right, followed by one from the left. Right. And Pietro Monte calls that that combination a levata.
1: Yeah. Well. So that action a levata. So he does the levata yeah. from both sides. But yeah, it starts oh, okay. as, so either it, either one of
0: those would be a levata.
1: Okay. Yep. So it starts right. true edge, and then it turns over at false edge, and so it's in that snap that you get that percussive action and that that heavy rotation. Um, and that's basically what Morazzo is doing. That's how he exits his plays. He does a levada mm-hmm. to the hands, right? He's, um, uh, and, and I think that that's really kind of how he, he proceeds to play um, in in the, the second assault. So I see him co-opting a lot of ideas, and I think that he is a co-opting ideas from Vadi. I think we see a lot of uh, similar um, structures in the way that he's developing his guards and, and sort of the, the tactical approach is, is is relatively similar. And that's that's really what I'm trying to explore. And that's kind of the the path that I'm on. So, you know, working from Fiore now, um, probably in a year or so, I'll start getting into this real deep dive of Vadi, um, following uh, Connor Kim Cow's awesome book that he just uh, put out on Vadi, where he, he's he's worked and done a lot of research on Vadi and the similarities of Vadi and countering Monty. Um and how there's sort of a connection between those two, uh, and so I'll I'll really start yes. getting into a deep dive on that.
0: Okay, yeah, I that that came out just this year, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I read yeah. It, yeah. the Light um, of Mars, yeah. Okay. Yep.
0: So, so you would think that Marozzo would have seen a copy of vadi's book. I don't know.
1: It, it's hard to That's say. A-
0: Tough I don't. It, there's only one copy of it. It's not. It's not like you know. Everyone's read the Da Vinci Code, or everyone's yeah. at least seen a copy of it because it's bloody everywhere. Um, there's like one known copy, and it would have been. Uh, it was probably. Was it in the Urbino Library at that point? No, it would have been nicked by um, Medici. Mm. No, not, yeah. not Medici. Sorry, Borgia, Borgia.
1: Oh. Jesery, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> I love history. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Yes, got a copy. Yes.
0: Oh, good. Okay. Uh, for for people who didn't see that, I I just I'm I'm checking my own <laughs> Vadi book. Uh, yeah. Because because I, I've I've written up a lot of this stuff in in here, and. If it was better organized, I would
1: be where is it? Yeah, you wrote a, uh, a great essay about the similarities of Fiore and, and Vadi and, and the and Morazzo and the, the sort of the, the guards and everything like that. And I think that's that's really helped to pique my curiosity and kind of looking through these things to see, you know.
0: Yeah, well I'm I'm glad you liked it. Um and one of the reasons I'm asking about it is of course I have my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I don't I don't think it's likely that because again there would be one manuscript, it would have been in Cesare Borgia's library. It's unlikely the Marotta would have had access to that, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um and Borgia was dead by this point anyway. And so where was that book? I honestly I can't remember. Um I can look it up. But um so but if there was a kind of a vernacular of sword language and sword style, um, like if you look at lineages in sport fencing now, Mm -hmm. they're all using the same terminology. They're all coming from a common source, but the way, I don't know, Sabre is taught in Hungary is quite different to the way it's taught in Britain is different to the way it's taught in America. It's different to the way it's taught in France and so on. Um, so are are we looking at a common system of which Marazzo would be a later dialect or what do you think?
1: Yes, and, and I think that's kind of I think that's more of what it kinda of comes down to. And obviously Vadi, you know, would Vadi have had availability well, I mean he probably did have some exposure to, to Fiore, right? in some way, because he, he co-ops a lot of his ideas from Fiore.
0: Yeah, and he quotes him outright in some
1: yeah. so, but, but then,
0: But then, hang on, hang on, just because my mum sang Twinkle Twinkle Little Star to me and your mum sang Twinkle Twinkle Little Star to you doesn't mean that we're related. No, it for sure. It just means that yeah. you know, there's this common song that mothers sing to children.
1: So, I mean, Morazzo, because the Dieste family and in the, in the Duke of Ferrara were, you know, for the most part in control of of Bologna at the time when Morazzo was sort of developing his cell and became the, mm-hmm. the principal fencing instructor in, in Bologna. Um, I don't know if he ever saw a copy of Fiore. We'll never know. Um, but the
0: the, cro- the copy would probably not have been in Bologna.
1: No, definitely the Dece, the not. The library not. would
0: have been. Um, and ah, blanking, um, yeah, there we go. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, but there's there's nothing to say that he you know wouldn't have had. Wouldn't have done that. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. I mean, it's it's a a ton of, of of speculation and just kind of ideas, but looking to themes and ideas that sort of transcend and. Is Morazzo in some way looking back and even looking at what was a common fencing system, sort of like what you said, uh, like a common fencing system that existed in Italy? And is this something that was more prevalent than we really kind of realized? I mean, you know, was were there students of, of Fiore that, you know, were like De Luca and, and had, you know, more students than Greeks that came out of the Trojan horse? You know, I mean possible. It's possible that these ideas sort of disseminated and, and sort of transcended. And then you have Morazzo, who's basically taking these same ideas and providing the language of the Bolognese system, which is unique at its time, and basically changing the language to match the things that he already understood as a common system.
0: Yeah, possibly. Um, and it it strikes me that we are always dealing with a very restricted data set because most most fencing masters in the period did not write books right? right and the ones who did write books there's no actual kind of there's no process by which only the good ones are allowed to write books yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> right? and, yeah. and there's no fact checking so they can say whatever they want and you know they, they can absolutely traduce somebody else's system or they can they can talk shit about other people as, as they did, if I'm remembering rightly Alfieri refers to Capo Ferro as Capo di Ferro so which for non-Italian um, listeners would be okay Capoferro's name is Capo Ferro which means iron head right right uh, but Capo di Ferro means head of iron in other words <laughs> thick <laughs> right Just, just and that was deliberate I mean that that, that yeah. was Alfieri being a dick.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean Manchilino talks smack about well, we, we think that, that Manchilino is talking smack about Morazzo and his book because they might have had some relationship. Again, this is all very speculative, but, but he talks a lot about Morazzo. he does, but they were both writing at the same time. There's okay. so there's there's a possibility that and and Michael Chidester actually just said something about this recently, that there might be or maybe this is something that Matt Gallis researched, but there might actually be a copy of Morazzo that was originally published, I think, in 1525. Oh, really? Yes. That would be very interesting. They found woodcuts, um, and the date is different. It's not dated Ooh. in the 1530s. Um, oh, and my God. The, the problem is, is that they only found the title page. So they found the woodcut with the title page, and the date is earlier than uh, what we know.
0: Oh, wow. That is very interesting.
1: Yeah, so Marto- now, It
0: could be... Okay, think think of Tybalt, right? Hmm. Tybalt's fabulous book, The Academy of the Sword, right? The date on the title page is wrong, right? Because the book was like four years late coming out. So I think it's 1628 on the thing, but it was actually only published in 1632, something like that. I'm, yeah. I'm probably mangling the dates, but that's... So... Having finding a plate saying fifteen twenty five, it could just be that that uh, was a very slow writer and yeah. overshot by about I don't know thirteen years or something. Or
1: <laughs> given given how labored <laughs> Marozzo's writing is, <laughs> it seems highly likely. <laughs> it does,
0: doesn't it? Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, so, or, 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 or there's, there is a book missing but, which has, okay, but if it's got plates, that doesn't mm. necessarily mean that it was a printed book. Because there is yeah. one copy of Capoferro that uh, Roberto Gotti has, and bless him, Roberto Go- Gotti is the man I got my copy yeah. of Fabris from, right? But he has a copy of Capoferro which has the plates printed onto the pages, but all of the text is handwritten. Mm. Right. Wow. I need to I need to get myself to Brescia and have a proper look at that and figure out whether it is a presentation copy or whether it is the copy that got sent to the oh. the, the printers so that they could like set all the type. So it's like the original original. So did Capo write it himself, or was it written by really, like, I mean there's there's lots and lots of questions oh, yeah. there. I but know. imagine if there's a Marozzo like that. Oh, that managed a Manuscript awesome. Marozzo with the woodcut plates from the first edition.
1: That'd be incredible, right?
0: Or even earlier.
1: So yeah, I mean, the yeah. general speculation to to kind of go back to that <laughs> is Morazzo talks a lot about money and his and his. He in uh, his treatise. I mean, he's writing it for his son. Is he's it writing eight, it for Sebastian. Eight
0: Bolognese pounds for uh, to learn the Zogolago? largos, like
1: that. Yeah, something like that. And it comes out to yeah. like a hundred dollars a month to to modern currency. Uh, a a moder- hundred U.S. dollars. Um, but uh, you know, and then Manciolino talks a lot about. How you should disparage people who do nothing but talk about money when it comes to fencing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it, whether or not that's true. It's it's fun to think about and it's funny because you know it's fun to rag on Maratzo. He's uh, it's fun to give him a hard time.
0: Yeah, that is fair. Um, okay, I I have to ask. All right. My absolute favorite 16th century Italian fencing treatise without question is Vigiani's Los Caramol,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? It, to me, it's like a Rosetta Stone of how Italian fencing works, right? yep. Okay, so for people listening, it was written in about 1551, 52. It was not published until um, many years after Vigiani's death. It was published in 1575, so it was about 25 years old when it was published um and it's in the form of a conversation between these three characters okay so what are your thoughts on vigiani
1: yeah so i have to first of all i agree it is the rosetta stone of most italian fencing and and i think it should be required reading for everybody who fences um because his discussion of tempo and association with Aristotle is one of the most important things to understand if you want to understand European martial arts. I agree. Hands down. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. because, you know, you you have these sort of two camps of people. You have camps of people who think that, you know, I guess isolationists, if you will, or people who take it more from a nationalistic perspective, where like they're like, no, Italian fencing is always different than German fencing, and they never co-opted any ideas. And then you have people who are like, oh no, there's no way. Like if if you look at the continuation of history throughout Italy, you know there are always Germans and, <laughs> and Spaniards and and French in and, and, and Italy. Yeah, so yeah. of course they were borrowing ideas. And um, but if you really want to find something that unifies all. European martial arts, it is Aristotle and Aristotle's physics, right? Yeah. So, Vigiani gives the best breakdown of that and his discussion of tempo, and you can literally take his discussion, you can apply it to Lichtenauer, you can do, um, you can apply it to the Bolognese system, you can apply it to Rapier, you can apply it, you can push it into everything that you can possibly imagine. You can even push it into 133, right? Yeah, of course, absolutely. So, I mean,
0: okay, let okay, let, let, me, let me just do that for you. The very first words, right? Fencing is the ordering of blows,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And then he gives you these seven guards. So, obviously, he's referring to blows, but he shows you the guards because the guards are the beginning, the middle, or the end of a blow. And he yep. says all fencing actions end in langor, which is the seventh ward, right, with the weapon extended. So he's saying, okay, you start from these various different positions, like under the the under the left arm or on the right shoulder or whatever, and you go into this long position, and those are the blows. That's that's what that page means, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, that's Aristotle. That's that's, that's, well, that's that's Aristotle as understood by Vigiani. As, as Vigiani explains Aristotle's physics in terms, as they apply to fencing tempo, that's exactly what he says.
1: Yep. And so for for people who haven't aren't familiar with the text or what he's kind of going for, the way that he basically describes it is, um, you know, Aristotle says that time is um the 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 amount of the the space in between two positions of rest right so if you're in a position of something traveling so imagine like the earth in orbit right we we consider something a year when the earth has completed its orbit around the sun and that's one year right so that space if you were to imagine that imaginary line is the, the continuation of that space so that's time and um and so what? What basically what Vigiani is sort of breaking down is he breaks this down into fencing terms where tempo or time is the the time, it's the, the space in between two positions of rest. So if you're in a high guard and you cut to Langort, for example, so you cut to a, a center guard, that space that the, the sword had to travel is the time, that's the tempo. Um, and it's something that even in... Um, and three two two seven a it mentions that uh, he mentions that Lichtenauer was aware of Aristotle. I can't remember the quote off the top of my head. Um, oh but- shame on you,
0: Joshua! I, mean, have <laughs> I you not know. not memorized the whole of three two two seven a.
1: Yeah, I, I think I pushed it out of my head. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, y- you have these these things that just show up continuously throughout and um, it, it's 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 brilliant I mean it's it's a brilliant exposition of, of what this is um, but to kind of take a step back um, with Vigiani in particular and the reason why I, I really love Vigiani um, so I had uh, somebody had asked me to put together a lecture um, for what the approach to fighting was in the Bolognese system and um, okay. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. Um, and so I started looking at the sources and and really how they approach the fight, like from the start of the fight. Um, and at the time, I was really starting to get into Palladini because I had just gotten my copy of Palladini, um, and Palladini gives a great exposition of how the fight should start, um, where you know he says basically you should. Uh, like, uh, come up to your opponent. Um, and once you're two steps away, you should start watching your opponent to see what position they're in. So that way you can come to the devices for how to basically foil their plans. Right. And then once you've made a plan, he tells you that you should press your plan, um, with, with, with abandon essentially. Um, which is interesting advice, right. Um, yeah. and I was, I kind of wanted to unpack that a little bit. So, I used that as the framework to really kind of build out the approach to fencing that I was looking at. I started looking at all the sources and finding a lot of agreement between all the different masters, whether it's Manchilino, Morazzo, Vigiani, or, um, you know, the Anonimo, and they were, they basically all say that kind of the same thing, like to, to constantly change your guard. And I was thinking, Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. You know, you don't see people do that a lot where they're, they're constantly changing their guard. But the, sometimes, you know, we develop bad habits in HEMA that don't necessarily fit the historical precedent. Where do
0: we- you know one, one thing that drives me completely batshit crazy is when you see two people who are supposed to be fencing each other with long swords
1: mm-hmm.
0: on the outside, outside measure, sort of just going from guard to guard. Pouncing around instead of getting in there and hitting their opponent. It drives me absolutely insane.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) which is funny because that's, that's kind of what they, they tell you to do, but there's, there's a level of intent for what they want you to do when you're assuming your guards. Um, and that's what I was trying to figure out, you know, like what, what is it that they're trying to convey where they're telling you to constantly change your guard and, why are they doing that? And so much of it is to disguise your intention as you're coming in. But there's obviously some, and, and this is something that, like, in the Bolognese system, there's a lot of emphasis on guards because there are a lot of guards. You know, Murazzo yeah. gives us 26 guards. It's a lot of guards. <laughs> it is a lot of guards. too much. The dude needed an editor so bad. Um, but... the the idea is that there is a lot of emphasis on guards and in these positions. And I started to realize that there's a tactical framework that sort of exists within these things. And at the time I was still kind of holding the belief that, you know, Vigiani was kind of a heretic, Because Vigiani goes on this, he he goes on this spiel where, you know, he's like, the Bolognese guards, they have stupid names. I'm going to give them more practical names. And this is basically me reinventing the system.
0: He's not a heretic,
1: he's a critic. He is a critic, but he's also a brilliant conveyor of ideas. And this is where this kind of came in, because Vigiani was working with um, the the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. He was tied to, in some way, to, to Charles V. And then eventually published his manuscript for posthumously. His brother um, published his, his treatise for Maximilian II, right? And so we're talking about him writing his treatise for the Holy Roman Emperor, which, you know, that's a pretty big deal. Pretty like, deal. Yeah, yeah if, if I start writing a fencing treatise for the president of the United States, I've probably done pretty good things. Like, I've made yeah. a name for myself.
0: Okay, the, the whole thing about book dedications is worth going into, because you... In this period, you—I mean, these days—you can dedicate your book to whoever you like, and it's just a dedication, right? Mm-hmm. Back then, if you dedicated your book to a person, you pretty much had to get their permission for it because you like, like Fabris dedicated his book to King Charles, uh, King, um, uh, oh my God, I have to dig it out and have a look, um, Christian the Fourth of Denmark, ah. right? Yep, right, and there's a picture of the king on the front of the. The book, I, I, I would dig it out and sure. show it to you because I, because you know, I happen
1: to have. You know, <laughs> <a laughs> Coffee of fact. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, to be in your library, I, guy.
0: You well, know, any time you're on Ipswich, <laughs> seriously, I'll, I'll sit you in an armchair and, and give you a Muratza and a glass of wine, and you'll be fine. Um, yeah, Christian the Fourth. There's a picture of the man. Yep. If you put a picture of the king in the front of your book, giving the impression that he's approved it and he hadn't, <laughs> you are going to spend the rest of your life in a really nasty, smelly dungeon. Yeah, Right? And exactly. all of your books will be burned. Yep. Right? Yeah. And if he really doesn't like you, he'll probably burn you with them. So, so okay. So, but but you so, know, like for, non, for non-specialist listeners, it's probably worth making that point that, okay, Vigiani can't just stick the king's name on the front of, or the emperor's name on the front of his book and expect to get away with it.
1: Yeah, he, there was there was some tie there. But th- the cool thing about it is when you think about it in that context, Vigiani is explaining the Bolognese system to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. And he's not writing to a knowledgeable audience. If I'm trying to convey an idea to a group of people and I need to basically translate things, they're not going to have the same like natural feelings towards the names of the guards where they're going to have a sense of familiarity or a sense of understanding or maybe even the cultural context to understand why Cotolunga Strada means the guard of the long tail. And then you get this thing from the, um, I think it's uh, the Anonymous where he talks about why it's the why It's exactly The journey. Oh yeah, no, you're right. You're right. right. It is a journey. Yeah, it's it's long.
0: Like you know, an important person has a whole retinue. A retinue.
1: Yeah, that follows him around. Yeah, exactly. And so you you get this this sort of description of what this guard is, and of course he explains it here, um, which yeah, jumbling that around. But um, the the idea is is that he's actually changing the names of the guards to convey the ideas, the tactical implications of each of the guards, and it is the most brilliant exposition that yeah. I have ever read because
0: it's perfect. It is. it is. It, it, Cause it's absolutely logical, right? If your guard has the point forward, it is perfect. Yes. If it doesn't have the point forward, it is imperfect. Yep. Right. If it is chambered to strike, it's offensive. Right. And, and if it's low, it's defensive. Right. De- right. Yeah. And so it's, it has this. So when he gives you the name of the guard, it's like first guard, um, hang
1: on, I'm, I'm, I can edit
0: out the, the bits. Let me let me see. I have um, the excellent ah, uh, what's his name?
1: Uh, Jarek Swinger.
0: Jarek Swinger, yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, I have his translation here somewhere, which is probably better to read from um, uh, no, That's a grip. I've got his his, his gripper is there. His Degrassi the is there. <laughs> he's prolific his Marozzo is there where the hell is
1: his <laughs> <laughs> he is prolific he's
0: <laughs> yeah and I've, I've recently moved everything around here and I haven't actually organi- reorganized the books I've just um so just sort of I think he
1: starts with Gordia Offensiva Perfecta
0: I his first ward is up above the shoulder isn't it oh yeah no, 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 so first ward, no his first ward, his first ward is
1: down here it's, yeah it's, it's sheathed I, yeah I,
0: where where it would be as if it was in the sheath. Yeah. So that's defensive uh, imperfetta, and then he swooshes it up, uh-huh. and then he's in um, offensive second ward, imperfecta. which is yeah, offensive imperfetta because it's it's on the right side, it's above the head, the point is forward, and then third ward is when he turns it so the point is back, which is imperfetta, and then he cuts down. Ah, oh, yeah, the whole book is just genius. It is, and it has is. that tree, the tree of gods.
1: He does, which is is beautiful, right? But. I'll, so, I'll take a picture in the show notes so people can see it. The thing about it is, like reading a Manchilino, like Manchilino gives this really interesting anecdote in his introduction. He says that, um, you know, basically, the low guards are good for defending, the high guards are good for attacking, and the when you're in a low guard, your natural offense is always going to be a thrust, right? So I took that and I I started really kind of delving into that further, and. Looking at Manchelino's offenses, um, basically with the sword and small buckler, which is sort of the framework of his system, and then he kind of builds off that into lots of different things. He, he constantly wants you to work back into it. Um, so for his, for his offenses, sure enough, when, when he's in Cotolonga stretta or when he's in Porta de Ferro stretta so he's in his low guards, either on the right or the left, um, he either attacks with a thrust or with a falso, and then the secondary intention sort of builds off of that. So a falso would be usually to the hand. I mean, we're talking about sword and buckler here, um, and so, but he limits it to just that. Whenever he's in a low guard, those are his basic actions, you know. And and the kind of the brilliance of it is, and Maranzo says this later on, is that when an opponent is in a low guard, um, and you're you're fighting them with sword and targa, you should watch their hand. He says that you should watch their sword hand, and this is another sort of piece that came from that whole like lecture. Um, is most of the, the Bolognese masters tell you to watch your opponent's sword hand. Um, and the reason why, Morazzo says, uh, with the sword and targa, is that if they're going to deliver a cut, they are, they're going to have to raise their hand, which is a tempo. It's a tempo of attack in Giovanni della Gocche, and, um Or they're going to have to pull their hand back in order to deliver a thrust, is what Moranzo says. Um, and so taking that and thinking about it, Mancini is kind of giving you this really interesting idea that if you can constrain your opponent when they're in a low guard, if you can step into measure when your opponent assumes a low guard as they're transitioning between different guards, you can basically trap them so that way their intentions are very limited. Like their good attacks are limited, and that he, and then you look at that from his tactical framework overall, and that's basically how he plays it out. Now, the thing is, is then when I had sort of made this realization and really kind of understood this, I went back to Vigiani and I was like, damn it, Vigiani, you are a genius. Like you, you have all these things and and really I didn't have to go through that entire like thought process. Vigiani had already done it for me. And, uh, I, I I love it. I love, I love what Vigiani has done. Um, and I I think that he is probably the most important source, um, Mostly because it's not just like I mean, he has a, a great disposition on the guards. He has a great disposition on what what tempo is and how to understand tempo.
0: Yeah, and isn't it cool how he how he even tells us how to parry, beating the sword away from you like you're actually afraid of it. And the, and he get, he bangs on about why it's dangerous to train with blunt swords because it basically teaches you to be complacent about your opponent's weapon. Yes, absolutely. That's not how he phrases it, but ah. Uh. Yeah. Whenever anybody has a go at me for doing exercise, you know, training with sharp swords, I'm like, Fijiani, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean. So, yeah, and, and, and the, the third thing that I was thinking about is actually, like, the turns of the body, the, the postures right. and the body mechanics. <gasps> the way that he describes body mechanics is brilliant.
0: Yes, and that turning that turning of the hips that brings up the back heel and then – when you've read Vigiani and you go back and look at Fiori again, it's like, holy yes, shit, there Yes, it is.
1: yes, yes, exactly. And that's the thing. So, like, this whole thing kind of, like, was in the process of when I was looking at Fiori. And I, I, the first thing, um, watching uh, Kurt go through and, and do the Fiori postures and the and the Mezzavolta and things like that, I was like, holy crap, that kind of reminds me of Vig- Vigiani a little bit. So I went and I grabbed my copy of Vigiani. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> There it is. Yep. Body Absolutely. mechanic and postures. I mean, and it's just, there's a lot of really great stuff in there. Um,
0: yeah. There is. And, and credit where it's due. If I recall correctly, it was Bob Sharon when he came to Finland in 2003 to do a seminar for me, or possibly it was 2005. I think it was earlier. I think it was 2003. That he was the one who put me on the Vigiani and says, like, guy, you've got to read Vigiani. I'm like, "Vigia who, what? <laughs> um, and I, I had a look, I was like, holy shit, Bob, you were right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a, So, okay. So, do you think Vigiani actually trained in the Bono system?
1: I do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean... And then, and then modified,
0: modified to, I mean, his Scalimal is like, it is one action,
1: right? It is, it is. yeah, it's a, but it's also... It's a zip file for fencing. It is, but it's also basically the exact same advice that Giovanni della Gocchia gives for his how to prepare for a duel in 20 days, or 30 days.
0: Right, and it is the same as, or oh, very, very similar to Fioris' plays of the sword in one hand, and it's similar to mm-hmm. the falling under against half-shield in 133, and at the end of Ferro he says... They, in Cavalier's Grand Simulacro, there is a chapter which is the secure way to defend yourself against any sort of blow. And guess what? You wait in a low guard, and when somebody attacks over your sword, as that's the only place they can attack because your sword is down and to the left, right? You beat it up into Prima and then you stab them with a lunge. It's Vigiani. Right. Just pure,
1: unadulterated Vigiani. So, and, and Murato, I mean, it's it's kind of, there's, in a way, it, it, it almost represents probably like this common approach to sword fighting and this might be sort of the common fencing of italian fencing is a lot of times even morato refers to rising and falling manchilino refers to rising and falling um, as actions that you should do and i mean it's it's basically false edge come back with an attack whether it's a thruster or cut i mean and you see it throughout all of these different Italian systems. You're, you're constantly yeah. coming up underneath your false edge and then coming back down. So. Right.
0: And this is incidentally why I think that the Lichtenauer, sort of the Lichtenauer settled of the verses and the Meisterhaus and what have you, like the advanced course, because mm-hmm. you see that in the Messer sources, but you don't see it in the Lichtenarian longsword sources because, well, everybody knows that stuff already. It's mm-hmm. my view. Is that's my opinion, and some people believe yeah. some people don't. But to my mind, a system that doesn't have you starting in a low guard on your left and parrying everything that comes at you with a rising blow, is probably missing something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's you know, I was just thinking about it. It's a, it's in Paladini too. Um in Paladini's he, he actually sticks it in his cut section. Um but he tells you that you can do it with a thrust. You can deliver an empergata. So
0: and you think about it it's, it's you know if you're holding a small sword and you're on guard in cart and somebody thrusts over the arm you parry with a false edge and thrust and it's <laughs> it's not necessarily the first technique and it's not the universal technique necessarily but that yeah. basic kind of false edge parry from the left and then you strike it's
1: everywhere so guy yeah. Palladini gives one of the coolest counters to that and Go on, uh, tell me man like when I, when I started studying paladini and I, I got into this, this parry of this play, I was like, Oh my God, like this is the most beautiful thing ever because it doesn't seem like it could work. Um, basically when somebody comes up with that false edge and they start to turn their sword over to, to deliver that thrust. Yeah. He says to turn your f- flat over their sword, basically going to Gordia de Facia, right? So you mm-hmm. push down their sword at the flat and it'll, Basically, set their sword completely off and and put the point right on their face, right so that's sort of the the initial setup to the play. It, it doesn't okay. feel like it doesn't feel like it should work right you're on the other side, they've got your false yeah. edge coming up, and you go up with your your the flat of your sword and just kind of have your sword fully extended in front of your face and then once you're in that position of leverage then you just take a step back with your back foot and let your hand drop and it just puts the point right in their chest and it is the most beautiful thing ever it is so have you got so it on awesome. video? I, I will I'm, we're working on we're
0: get, <laughs> it, get it get it get it on video for me and, and send me the video and, or send me a link and I'll put it in the show notes and th- this this isn't going out till like February so you have a bit of time Okay. we're recording yeah. this in October I'm, Definitely. I'm way ahead on my podcast um, recording at the moment
1: I, will. Right? I so will. you have
0: some time, but don't <laughs> do, do not let the listeners down, sir.
1: I won't. I won't. Okay. It's okay. beautiful. Though.
0: If if he fails to get the video to me before this episode goes out, listeners, email me and I will forward your complaints. Okay. To Josh. I promise.
1: You. <laughs> Duly noted.
0: <laughs> I, mean, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't dox you and give out your email address or anything on. on that that would be wrong, but I yeah. will forward the complaint.
1: <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> fair? <laughs> fair. Absolutely. <laughs> really. fair.
0: Okay. And okay. Speaking of listeners, you have a podcast, L'Arte dell'Arme. Okay. Which is the Italian for the art of arms. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell us a bit about your podcast. Cause so I'm fairly sure that some of the people who listen to this show are quite interested in podcasts about sword stuff.
1: Yeah. So, um, I started the podcast because I love, you know, when the pandemic hit, we kind of lost the sense of community that you get from going to events and getting to sit down with other sort of people and have those conversations over drinks or something like that after an event that, you know, I was like, I kind of want to, I want to get that back. And I want to start engaging in these conversations again because mm-hmm. I feel like I've always learned so much from sitting down and just listening to those conversations. Like the conversations right. that happened at uh, at Lord Baltimore's challenge were incredible. Right. You know, like <laughs> yeah, I yeah. was I was sitting at a, at a table with Mike Pendergast and uh, and Devin Borman and just listening to them go back and forth, and I was just like, "This is." <laughs> what world do I live in right now? (laughs) But to get, to get these, these conversations going where you, you have this exchange of ideas, I think is, is so important. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I think that's, it's a really great way to learn. And then obviously like the long form version of, of a podcast allows you to really kind of get those ideas out there for people to, to really kind of hone in and explain those things. And with the Bolognese system in particular, it's growing. Um, you know, it, for the longest time, Ilka was basically <laughs> like, he's like yeah, the, uh, like the okay. godfather. of let, let,
0: let, <laughs> let me tell you a story about Ilka, right? Okay. In, I think it was 2006, thereabouts, I was about to get into the Bolognese stuff. And Ilka was studying with me, had been for some years, and was working towards his assistant instructor's exam. Right? And one of the things you have to do for that. Is to present your own interpretation of a historical fencing system from sources. And he he had fallen he fell in love with the Bolognese bit before this, and he said, right, he wanted to do Bolognese, right. And so I stopped doing my <laughs> Bolognese research because what I was expecting to happen was um, Ilka would then, you know, do. His, his exam, what have you, which he did, and he passed it, flying colours. Da that And then he would basically kind of do the Bolognese program for the school. Didn't quite work out that way. He ended up starting his own thing with some other people. Um, but it was like, if Ilka hadn't gotten into Bolognese, I would have done. Mm. I only, I only came, held back from diving into the Bolognese because... I was leaving the field open for Ilka so that he could, you know, he could... The problem is, when you're the teacher, it's very easy for your students to kind of pick up your your prejudices and your preconceptions mm-hmm. and your biases and what have you. And I wanted him to come at it without any instruction from me. I mean, instruction in, like, research practice and how to write an essay and stuff like that, but not not actual in the molinade stuff itself. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and so... I'm very very glad that he really did run with it because if he hadn't have done it, I would probably be teaching Bolognese seminars now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, so much of the material that he produced ended up was, I think, a, a catalyst for a lot of people. Um, sure. You know, uh, kind of going back to the question of why why the Bolognese system. You know, one yeah. of the great things about Bolognese in general is that you have you have kata. Right. You have forms yeah. that you can do. And I, you know, th- through my, f- my fencing career going out and, and fighting, people have always sort of been like, uh, one of the, the observations people will make when they've seen me fence, they're like, man, your footwork and your control is like exceptional. And I'm like, yeah. They're like, how do you do it? Well, I do forms for an hour, two hours a day, almost every day. That'll right? do it. That, that'll do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: I get this but so much. People are like, oh, forms are stupid. Oh, forms only work if the per- your attacker happens to follow the form exactly and blah, blah, blah. I had the same conversation with um, uh, Manusha, Dr. Mm-hmm. Manusha Kurosani. Um He, uh, on this pod- podcast, I don't know if you listened to that one, but he's like, yeah, and those same people who complain about forms of crap do forms. They just call them something else yeah <laughs> like they call them like combinations or they do very short forms like yep. you know jab, jab, straight punch or whatever
1: yep, yeah, so so uh, yeah I, it's it's an interesting way i mean i I tell people all the time it's it's the coolest way to work out ever, you know it, yeah, it's really. the best workout that you can possibly imagine just go out in a field, you know sometimes I'll put some music on and go out there and and just go through all these forms and okay. what music? I'm, I'm a bit of a metal head sometimes. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> usually it's, uh, usually it's some, some form of, of heavy metal, but, um, okay. you know, but, uh, sometimes I'll listen to, to classical music. Um, my instructor, Chris, Chris Nolan, um, he, uh, our, our head instructor for the Bolognese system. He, he loves to listen to the Nutcracker. Okay. He says that <laughs> if you pair the Nutcracker with, with, uh, Morazzo's forms. It, it actually has a, a really awesome flow. So he'll listen, he'll do everything in tempo, and then he'll go yes. back and he'll choose the time when he's going to break the tempo. And it's really easy because it's in a, a standard um, timing.
0: Yeah. So,
1: um, I mean, there are different ways to go about it, right? You can make this really dynamic. You can sort of add different elements into what you're doing. But, um, you know, that's that's one of the things that I love about the Bolognese system is that it it it's really fun to practice. You can take this practice into a lot of different areas. Um, but so much of that is comes from um, from what Ilka was doing where, you know, he taught the forms and that's basically what a lot of people in the Bolognese community <laughs> knew <laughs> of, of the Bolognese system because we didn't really have the treatises yet. I mean, we had Manciolino uh, from Tom Leone's translation um, and that was basically it. What we knew of Morazzo really kind of came from Ilka and the work that he had done. Um mm-hmm. And um, because the translation that was on Wichtenauer is not the best, um, but when we got, when when you finally had this, this uh, series of publications and, and the Jarek Swanger doing the Lord's work and getting all of these treatises <laughs> translated. Um, yeah, Jarek's a it, great guy. It, it's created It's created this explosion of understanding of the Bolognese system. So when I say that we're relatively, like, we're starting to figure things out, right? And so mm-hmm. one of the important things about having the podcast is that as we're in the process of figuring these things out, having these conversations about the things that we don't understand or that we are trying to figure out helps to, or at least I hope it helps to kind of bring these things to the forefront and allow people to sort of listen to what other people are thinking, pull those things in and then start to explore them themselves. So, and, and not only that, but there are also aspects of the Bolognese system that I knew that I would never get a chance to explore. So like one of the episodes I talked to um, Eric Weiss, who's down in Dallas and Eric is a Bolognese practitioner, but he was also a jouster uh, so oh, he was in, right. uh, he, he jousted in medieval times and it was really cool. So we, I just, I was like, Eric, what we need to do is we need to sit down. We need to take Giovanni Deligocchia's chapter on jousting and let's break it down bit by bit. And That's then let's, right and then let's take Murazzo's advice for what to do when you're fighting somebody on horseback and you just have a sword and a cape. And let's talk about that because you've actually had somebody ride you down on a horse And you've had to jump out of the way. So let's talk about what that actually means. What does that feel like? Like, how is it, what does it feel like to get that timing right? You know? Yeah. So those are the things that I really wanted to explore. Um, I think the next episode that I'm going to do, I'm talking to Reese Nelson, um, who's uh, Mm -hmm. does a a fantastic uh, podcast on armor. Uh, Another sort of gateway thing that a lot of people aren't going to do is get a suit of armor, though they should. Um.
0: I, yeah, they should. But. <laughs> grand.
1: I know it's Twenty it's not grand. easy. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, it is.
0: For a lot but of people, it's just not approachable.
1: It, it's it's not possible, right? And so, th- in the next episode, we're going to walk through um all of the anonymous poleaxe and armor plays, and we're. Oh, cool! I want them to talk about the limitations of armor. Uh, we've got a, a group at our school that's really starting to get into armor, and some of their observations about things that you can and can't do in armor are incredibly fascinating, like your arms don't quite move the same. You can't really lift your arm up over your shoulder, depending on what you kind have, of kit you're wearing.
0: Well, okay, if you've got good armor, you should be able to put your hands together over your head. Oh, okay. And we know this, if you think if you think of, like, look at um, uh sword and armor guards. Yeah. He has a guard where you're holding the sword over your head. Yeah. Right? In but I, you I, only- the
1: limitation, I think, is more in the, in the bend of the elbow, where you can't quite get your arm all the way back, Right
0: um okay my armor
1: uh-huh
0: um, I, I without armor I'm keeping my wrist straight there's uh-huh. about there's about four inches between the knuckles of my hand and my shoulder I can press that down or bend my wrist to get it in contact but keeping the wrist straight is about four inches in armor I would say it's probably about five inches
1: gosh gotcha. yeah so it's not that much of
0: a difference yeah but yeah. you know... The, the armor needs to be tailor-made, yeah. And it needs to because okay, the treatises are written for people who really are rich and mm-hmm. um, armored combat is their job, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And so and so they are. It's the there's the expectation is you are wearing tailor-made armor that works really well, and it's you know it's like you know if you have a, a treatise on driving a car. They, you know, and, and, and so let's say a does on stunt driving,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? They will expect you if you're, if you're taking the stunt driving course with uh, your car, they will probably expect you to have a certain kind of quality of car, mm-hmm. right? That,
1: yeah, no, that makes yeah, perfect it, sense. It's, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. So, so I, th- I think a lot of the limitations that we get with um, modern armor. Is because the armor that people are getting off the shelf or whatever, it may be fairly accurate in terms of. Well, there's a lot of people in medieval times who wore armor that was that didn't fit properly because they stripped it off a corpse or bought it in a market or got it secondhand from their mate when they were playing dice and you know. All right, okay, I'll bet you my watchman call it against your arm, arm armor because it almost fits me. Right, that that there's a lot of that going on, but I think for the. The, the treatises that we're we're looking at, the expectation is that the armor was made for you and it was made to a really high standard.
1: Yeah, no, say. definitely. I mean, but there are some overall limitations of what you what you can and can't do. There, there are also sure. certain ideas that exist in armor. Like measure, for example, is going to be closer when you're in armor. Um, and so you have these sort of inherent things that exist where I feel like could create either not necessarily bad habits or just kind of misunderstandings of things if you were to go and you were to look at um uh, the anonymous for example with his his pull axe and armor so to try to understand those things what are the considerations Mm -hmm. that you need to make as you're exploring these different things if you don't have that experience of doing that thing the way it should be done um right so you know
0: all right so your podcast is basically kind of deep dives on specific topics
1: Yeah. So, well, so sometimes it's deep dives on specific topics. Sometimes it's kind of um, really just kind of highlighting the practitioners that are out there in the Bolognese community, kind of letting them get their ideas out there. Um, So, you know, I've talked to all sorts of people um, that, you know, ask them about what they, a lot of times I'll just ask them ahead of time, like, what do you, what do you, what's your focus? Like, what are you really interested in? And let's, let's do a deep dive on it. Let's just get amplify those people's voices so that way they get out there and then you know people can hear that and, and say okay I like that I don't like that I agree with that I don't agree and so on
0: one of my sort of principles for this for my show is um, I hope that about 10% of the listenership love every episode A different 10% for each episode perhaps or overlapping 10% if you know what I mean mm-hmm. but I'm not trying to please everyone um, So I'm not trying to make a kind of general interest show. I expect people to have their favourites. And, you know, I I, I know exactly, I I can think of at least two or three people who are going to be extremely excited about this episode, right? Not least because at least one person actually emailed me and said, "Guy, you've got to get Joshua (laughs) Wieston because he's like, ah, A's. ah, do that, right? So um, and that's better than just trying to please the general audience, I think.
1: Um, Yeah, but the cool thing, Guy, and I've got to say this, because I I am an avid listener of your podcast, and it's funny, because, like, when you asked me to come on here and do this podcast, I was like, man, I've stolen more ideas from Guy's podcast. (laughs) 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 Because... You've given me some great ideas, like uh, the barefoot uh, walking and barefoot shoes. Like yeah. I, I was like, I'm sold. I'm gonna give this a shot, and I converted completely to barefoot shoes. Even the shoes that wow. I wear at work now are all barefoot shoes. Um, we had an event, um, and this I guess will be in February. Back in October, uh, called October Effect, and mm-hmm. I got a I got a dancing instructor to come out, a historical dancing instructor to teach that us how.
0: Fantastic!
1: And, and all of these ideas have come from your <laughs> podcast. Where
0: <laughs> I hear all I, these. I, I'm not at all sorry.
1: <laughs> no, and you shouldn't be. I mean it, it's it's fantastic, but I think that that level of of learning and, you know, just hearing like I said, hearing different ideas, hearing different voices and sort of co-opting some of those ideas and bringing them into your own practice and study, I mean, it it just makes you such a more well-rounded and proficient practitioner. So, I love it. I agree.
0: Yeah, so so it's Katie Bowman's episode that converted you to barefoot shoes.
1: It was, yeah, me.
0: Yeah, she's <laughs> fantastic. I love yeah. Katie. It was, it was a funny story, actually, because Katie's, like, quite high-powered and difficult to get hold of, so, I, you know, you, you don't email her directly. You mm-hmm. email her assistant, who decides whether or not to send it on. That is power. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> right yeah. Um, and it was extraordinary. Like, like, so I, I, I'm I, a barefoot tube person or whatever, and Jessica Finley suggested, you know, Katie Bowman would be great for the podcast and actually my assistant Katie who who actually does all the kind of the work for the podcast like transcriptions and uploading everything and you know I, the podcast would not exist without her um so she was like oh get Katie Bowman on yeah Katie Bowman's fat so I approached her and I within like 12 hours given the time distance that's extraordinary I got this email back like hell yes like with a picture of Katie herself holding a sword because like, apparently her son is like he's like 10, I think is like mad about swords.
1: So That's like, awesome.
0: Oh. That was yeah, that, that, was, that was that went really well. Who was, who was who got you into the dancing?
1: Um, I can't, it was I can't remember the lady's name. It, uh, she you were talking to somebody who did Elizabeth Elizabethan recreation. Ah, yes, yeah, and she, I think she is that the one she was talking about cooking as well. But you guys yes. went on this this long conversation about dance and how dance was so important. Um, and I was right. like, Oh,
0: yeah, that's, you know that's what Ruth Goodman,
1: yeah, forty four. That was yeah, she's fat. Yeah, that was that was great. And so yeah, I I went out. I found one of the best uh, historical dance instructors in the U.S. and we brought her out for an event. And you know what? Fantastic. Everybody loved it. It was it was incredible. So who was who was it? Um, it was, uh, her name is Jeanette Watts.
0: Jeanette Watts. Okay. Yep. Maybe I should, I should approach her for the show, perhaps.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that would okay. be, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you her information. She's, really? she's Too fantastic. Yeah.
0: And the funny thing about these deep dives, like one of the most popular episodes of the last little while was with Cornelius Berthold, which wasn't even a proper podcast episode. I didn't actually really interview him. He asked some questions about Capo tempo and we ended up having this great long very geeky discussion about tempo and yeah it 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 got maybe 50% more listens in the first 2 weeks than than the average it's like okay people are really into the deep dive stuff
1: <laughs> good yeah plan. yeah i mean it's it's weird cuz like the my for my podcast, it started more as just kind of highlighting the individuals and having those conversations. And then it the deep dive started happening more and more because I think people were really interested in just kind of like getting, you know, everybody has something they're passionate about. You know, right. some people want to really, like my, my passion right now, the thing that I'm really kind of getting into is this whole like thing about the guards and like really trying to understand what they convey tactically. Um, mm-hmm. And I could talk about it for hours, you know, <laughs> and other people, it might be, you know, tempo. And I, I'd love to to talk about tempo, you know, um, when I had Devin Borman on there, we talked about what it was like to sort of train your students and really kind of build them up and, and create like a, a good structure around like, um, how to sort of take your students from like a intermediate level to an advanced level. Um, and to get his perspective on that was really great because, you know, he's trained a lot of fencers. Um, right. and so, you know, it's, it's all over the place and, um, yeah, it's, it's good stuff.
0: Brilliant. okay. So as a listener of the show, you you
1: know what's coming. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Tell us what is the best idea you haven't acted on?
1: So this is this is a tough one um because I've got I actually have quite a few like good ideas that I've never acted on. Um mm-hmm. I've never I've never been to Europe, okay. which is you know shocking. I I it is shocking. <laughs> I need to get over there. Um but you know I've I've got I I feel like because I have such a curious and inquisitive mind, I have so many things that I will think about and I'll think, "Huh, I need to really explore that and and try to understand that." And then I'll kind of put it in a box because it doesn't necessarily fit with what I'm doing at the moment. Okay. Um studying rapier, uh I think is is actually one of the things that I have would be a, a is the most brilliant thing that I haven't acted on because I feel like it would be so much fun and I would love to do it but I haven't done it and it's just like it I have I even have all the treatises and they're just like sitting on my shelf staring at me and just like you know staring deep into my eyes and I've been stuck in this 16th century world and I haven't quite taken that step into the 17th century I've I've dabbled a little bit you know like paladini's like as close as you can get <laughs> so you know he's he's kind of he's like my my gateway and in, into eventually making that transition but that's probably the one that I haven't done quite so much okay so you should definitely study rapier
0: I, I, I the thing is to my mind rapiers it because it's it emphasizes a particular kind of play not to the exclusion of all others but it really focuses on sort of point control and blade relationship and it does all of that really specifically you can take that understanding and apply it to any other system you study
1: yeah and, yeah, yeah absolutely
0: yeah and without that even sort of without cross contaminating it it just gives you an insight into blade relationship that you won't get anywhere else I don't think yeah small, small no sort of people are jumping up and down the back going small sort of <laughs> yeah but it's different with small sort <laughs>
1: So it's it, it's actually really interesting because like I I feel like Dalagokie actually kind of references this a little bit in his treatise where he talks about um, you know how the fencing of his day is less uh, or is narrow and it's primarily narrow and then again you look at his guards and basically the guards of Dalagokie, he gives you save um, Cinqueari Porta de Ferro he basically condenses the Bolognese guards down to prima seconda terza and quarta. Right, Cordia de yeah. Alicorno, Coda Longa Stretta, Porta de Ferro Stretta. Yeah, it's, and that's that's his entire system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. we. So he, we,
0: he's he's getting towards rapier.
1: He is, yeah. And then Palladini basically has made that conversion. He uses the the you know the Roman system and the names of his guards. He t- speaking of people talking smack about other fencing instructors. He talks mads back about Agrippa which is pretty great.
0: <laughs> uh, so so but if I remember rightly, I think Agrippa is, Camilo Agrippa, 1553, mm-hmm. um, he was the first person to number guards, wasn't he?
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: But not strictly a Bolognese person.
1: No, no. uh. Uh-uh. So Agrippa kind of came up with his own system and really kind of introduced the lunge as like sort of the the primary motive for driving the point. Um, And the, the criticism from Palladini is actually that uh, he doesn't like the lunge. Um, He thinks it's dangerous. He says you would never do it on a field. That's um, with like uneven ground. Um, And so what he, he advises instead, or at least what he primarily does in his system is he does a left foot pass. Right. So, um, Because it says it's safer. Okay, so
0: there, there's there's an awful lot of work to be done, I think, getting putting Agrippa into a proper relationship with the Bolognese because there's no way he was unaware
1: of it. No, for sure, absolutely. You know, I, and I'm not. So this is this is where the whole like Northern Italian sort of system comes from. Like, I would love for somebody to produced a translation of or at least my italian to get good enough where i could really start getting into altoni um okay and looking at that the florentine system and how it relates because we have all these like similarities and these commonalities between the different things like one of my favorite systems to study in the bolognese system and outside of the bolognese system is two swords um okay. two swords is by far one of the most challenging and tactically uh interesting approaches to how to fight because you have two weapons that are both good at offense and defense and um there are clear differences like if you look at agrippa his two sword system is very similar to what altoni and docciolini do well, where and, and the, even paladini agrippa
0: says that you should use the sword in your left hand as if it was a dagger and just parry with it and hit with the other one as i recall Yes. As I recall. I so,
1: know. no, no, no. You, know, you're you right. You're right. So, I, I'm thinking from like from a, a stance, like a, a general guard perspective. So, oh, like okay. one of the things, like um, you see with Palladini where he always has one sword high and one sword low. Uh, Docellini and um, Altoni do the same thing. Where if you look at Marazzo and Manchilino, um both of them generally keep the swords on the same side. Um, okay. And they keep them relatively close together. So with Manchilino in particular, you have one sword that's in uh, Gordia de Testa, and another sword that's in Porta de Faro, or a, a mirror of that on the other side. And with Morazzo, you usually have both points for it, um, which is pretty curious because um, Paladini, Agrippa?
0: So Agrippa doesn't, Morazzo doesn't do. So Morazzo does two swords as well. He does. Yep. Okay, so I, I, I must have skipped that a bit because I'm actually okay. This is like my favorite kind of conversation, where I now have like three or four, four open books <laughs> around me, and I just went to get number five, which is um, Ken Monshie's translation of Agrippa, and I was just digging through it to have a look at his two sword guards, chapter seventeen, page eighty-seven of, um, because I was just making sure that it's been a while since I've read it, so I was making sure I was I was right about the, um, holding the sword in. The sword in your left hand is the one that you parry with.
1: Yeah. yeah well, should, I mean, I think... He should keep his
0: left hand sword free as he traverses so that he can parry the of his weapons. And he should do all of this in one time.
1: So that's basically okay. Morazzo. I think... Morazzo never says that. Well, he, he kind of does. So he says you come up underneath and you, you find their sword um, on the on the first or second play. But he the way that Morazzo approaches it, and I think that this is... I think this is the safe approach, is that you're always covering one of your opponent's swords. You're trying to get to a specific line. So whether you're always working to the outside of a sword, right? right <laughs> so yes. you, you're, you can get to the outside of a specific line and you can go ahead and start to initiate your attack. What Moranzo likes to do is find your opponent's uh, uh, left sword and then throw a falso to the hand on that side and force them to parry. And then he sort of transitions through the plays mm-hmm. that way. Um, interesting of note, Morazzo's eighth play with two, hand, with two swords actually really looks like if you if you do this in practice, and I know people have different interpretations. The interpretation that seemed the most logical to me looks exactly like what ends up happening in the painting, The Duel of the Century, where you have Escanio fighting uh, Giovanni Tati in Florence in that famous two-sword duel where they like closed off the city of uh, Florence and, and had like 10,000 spectators or something like that. And they're all watching this two sword duel and uh, uh, Ascanio ends up killing Giovanni Totti. But Totti was, um, Totti was a part of the Florentine system. So he had studied in that general system without like perhaps a student of Altoni or perhaps Altoni himself. Um, and uh, we know that Ascanio studied the Bolognese system. So ah. here we have another famous anecdote, and so it kind of looks like he's doing Morazzo's eighth play, and uh, oh, and that's, that's where he, okay. yeah. You have
0: send me send me a link to that picture, and I'll put the picture in the show notes. I will, so yeah, that, so that people, people can find it because um, There's a lot of Italian terms there that otherwise have to spell right to Google it and find it themselves. Yeah, this so, is going to be a very but, long set of show notes. <laughs>
1: that's
0: good. Great. Yeah, it is. That's good.
1: I'm sorry. No, no, but, no. It's good. It's good. The, the interesting thing about it is, so in, in certain two-sword systems, um, you'll have one sword high and one sword low. And I think that's kind of how Agrippa approaches it. That's how Altoni and, and um, uh, Dociolini approach it. And that's how Palladini approaches it. Where with Morazzo, he keeps them low. And one of the interesting things that Palladini says is that you would want to do that because you always have one sword attacking, like your high sword, again, kind of going back to that whole thing, your high sword is the one that attacks and it goes low. And as you attack, you basically turn your body back across. So your low sword that was parrying now becomes your offensive sword. And you kind of have this like arms rotating back and forth in this like swing like um, sort of a pendulum type way. Um, and that's kind of the, the framework of their system. Now, Marazzo is completely different. He likes to come up underneath and, and kind of attack and, like, come over and stuff like that. And uh, Manchilino is very similar. But uh, the um, Palladini gives this weird anecdote where he talks about uh, when you're fighting with two swords, you only bring the two swords together where both points are forward if you're fighting somebody with a two-handed sword. Okay. Just really weird, interesting piece of advice.
0: That makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, because then you can cover and come straight you need
0: through the cross. Yeah, you need to cover with both hands. Yeah. Because we're talking about a, a two handed sword, like it's a that's a big weapon it hits really hard if you're not careful. So exactly. you, if you're gonna cover it, you need to cover it with both hands at once and then probably keep it with one and free the other sword to strike.
1: Huh. Yeah. Paladini wow, gives okay. some really cool stuff in in terms of like just these really odd anecdotes. Like um he, He tells you that he actually advises that your students learn how to fight, obviously with both hands, right? Right Right-handed, left-handed. And then they learn two swords as their second, like that's their second study. And then they learn sword and dagger.
0: But practically nobody carried two swords.
1: Right, so he gives an anecdote about that, and that's the other one that I was going to get to. He tells you, (laughs) he tells you that if you have, if you have a second or if you have a page, they should always carry a sword, not for their own defense, but to hand you the sword. So that way, (gasps) if you ever get jumped in the street, you have two swords.
0: I think I would rather hide behind the page and let him deal with it. (laughs) I mean, come on. Yep. But that, that is fascinating. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay, so, so the best idea you've ever acted on is to learn Rapier, but, but then we go off on a great long riff about sword, uh, two swords at once. Actually, it's a question I get asked yeah. a lot. You know, And the thing is, we don't have very many accounts of duels fought with two swords. So, uh, and I'm more of a sort of sidearm person rather than a specialized dueling system person. So I've never really looked into it that much. Um, but a lot of people yeah. are curious about it because it's, it's very flashy and cool um, it go.
1: is and it's fun
0: okay somebody gives you a million dollars now you've listened to the podcast so you've had time to prepare this we are expecting I great things from mm-hmm. you Joshua great things <laughs> somebody gives you a million dollars whatever to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide how do you spend the money
1: I would I would take a team of scholars and I would lock them in every library and private collection in Europe and have them scour and find all of the treatises that we can't find.
0: Okay. So you would put the money towards finding more treatises, finding more sources.
1: So like Tom Leone's, because I think that we're, I think that there are data points that we can start to find and understand that are going to be more beneficial to our development of, historical European martial arts. I think one yeah. of the most important books that's come out on fencing in the last five or six years um is
0: You better uh, say one of mine, mate.
1: You better say one of mine <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean yours yours are your Your books are fantastic. But it's Sorry. in terms of in terms of historical sources, um not <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, know. I was teasing. I know is the uh, the anonymous vienna uh, um oh yes oh my god because what we're we're actually like. getting the perspective of the student um and a student <laughs> writing the notes of the master so the the anonymous vienna is a uh, is it's it's a it's basically a compilation of notes uh where there was a um a, a student of fencing in germany who compiled um Notes from Fabris, Capifero, and there's one that I'm forgetting. Who's the third one, Guy?
0: I should know. You're right to call me out. And I I forgot. It's been a little while since I read it. But yes, it's mostly, most of them are Fabris and a bit of Capifero. I mean,
1: yeah. Giganti would and, be the obvious so
0: third one, but I don't think it's Giganti.
1: I don't think so. But yeah, he's, he's a, he basically just a student of rapier. And so he's he's writing all these notes, he's writing comparisons between the different systems, and he's writing out all these ideas. Um, and he's in detail describing the footwork where the masters or the, the the actual authors themselves might be kind of scant on the details of footwork and things like that. This guy writes notes on footwork like it's something that he's learning. And from a learner's yeah. perspective, from, from a scholar's useful. perspective, it's incredibly useful, like that's, that's what we need. Like, and and those treatises exist. Like I I was, when I was talking to Marino de Ricci, um, he said that they found something in in Brescia that they're going to be publishing soon. Um, where again, you have this treatise from like the, the mid 16th century that's written from the perspective of a student, um, where they hired some unknown fencing master to come in and teach them fencing. And they just basically jotted down a bunch of notes and it's their notes it's not the fencing master's wow. notes it's their personal notes and that's I feel like those are out there and if we could get through okay. a lot of these archives which are dense uh, we can start to get some of those ideas or we might find something like de Lucas or um, uh, darty is I think it's Darty that had the wrote a treatise on fencing and mathematics right and that's probably in a library somewhere in Bologna or in a private collection and if I we think- could get that, Um, you know, we would learn so much. Um, it could be lost to time, who knows, but, um, they're definitely out there somewhere. There's a treatise that's going to just blow everybody's mind, just sitting, collecting dust. And that breaks my heart.
0: Okay. That's, that's not a bad use of the money. Um, it's funny because you're relatively young, I think, and you probably don't remember what it was like 20 years ago in historical martial arts or 25 years ago where a dodgy photocopy fifth generation photocopy um, of half of a manuscript was considered like gold yeah <laughs> right we had no WICTA now we had no published facsimiles we had no translations we had none of that stuff and so now I look at WICTA now and there's like there are hundreds of sources <laughs> that you yeah. can download in high resolution and it's free. And you, so from that perspective, the notion of wanting more original sources is like, really? Look at how many you've already got. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, I guess, from, but, but, you know, your point about the Viennese manuscript is, is well made. It's like, there's, doesn't necessarily even have to be these sources, uh treatises written by historical fencing masters. It, the students' notes are a fascinating insight into how they were thinking and what they were what they were struggling with and and like they're basically providing glosses. Mm-hmm. Right? Then when you think about it, like most of what we know about Lichtenau's actually yep. doing Lichtenau's longsword stuff doesn't come from Lichtenau's writings. It comes from glosses written effectively by students explaining Lichtenau's writing.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, so I, if I had the money, I'd give it to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, I, I, I don't know. Like the anonymous Bolognese is in particular, just like it, it blows my mind at times with the sort of the expansiveness of it. I mean, obviously you have somebody that really loved the single-handed sword enough that he yeah, did like 640-something plays. <laughs> it's it's a massive tome that I will never be able to complete, right? There's, so, there's already so much material out there to study um, that it, it's impossible to get through all of it um, in a lifetime, right? I would have to live right. at least two lifetimes to cover all this stuff. But there are perspectives in there that are... Brilliant. And every once in a while you come across something that just kind of like sticks with you. Like the Anonymous says this one thing where he says, Also you must know that if your enemy is in a wide guard, then you use your art to bring his sword into presence. If he has his sword in presence, then uh, by means of fainting, make him bring his sword into, um, into a wide guard that allows you to control the line. Such that the sword will point away from your person and off to the side of your body so that you'll be able to perform whatever actions you wish. And that is like literally the... Perfect summation of fencing that I have ever heard. Like it's, right. it's pristine. Control his
0: weapon. Yeah,
1: control the yeah. weapon, and control the line. And it's it. like, yeah, yeah, and That's it's like, it I wish I want to. I want to tattoo that on every every bull and fencer's palm, so they can just always <laughs> have it there and just like you know check their palm. <laughs> what am I doing? My fencing isn't really working right now. Wait, let me take my glove off. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Now I got it. Let's go. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So actually, actually, really, we should spend the money um, setting up mobile tattoo parlours where all Bolognese fans <laughs> have to report. Before they're, allowed, before they're allowed to call themselves a Bolognese fencer, they have to report and have this tattooed on their hand. And right. I, actually, honestly, I think it should be in both Italian and in translation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well we can do uh Italian on the right hand so that way or on the left hand so it's close to the heart and then we'll do yeah. whatever language is their native language on their on their right hand.
0: <laughs> Guys, I, I think I think I think we've nailed it. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well thank you so much for joining me today, Joshua. It's been lovely getting to know you.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure, guy. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joshua. And really, how could you not? If that's not your kind of conversation, then this is probably not the podcast for you. Um, You can find the, in this case, very necessary show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast, where I've spent the morning putting in pictures of Vigiani's tree of guards and images from Morozzo and various links and what have you. Or rather, the lovely Katie McKenzie has been working exceptionally hard to get the 17,000 word transcription done. So, um, yes, there's a lot of material in the show notes. So you want to find those at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It basically gives me the time to spend two hours chatting to Josh and then chopping that down into a just under two hour episode for you guys to enjoy. So many thanks to my kind patrons. If you'd like to join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy, it would be lovely to see you there. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque Harp Strums, and you'll be delighted to hear that I actually have an interview with him scheduled for later this month, so we'll be doing the interview in a week or so, and then it'll be coming out probably in April. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Carina Cirincione of Raven Studios, who makes wooden training weapons such as longsword wasters, rondel daggers, and even gladii. She also makes wooden training weapons for Eastern martial artists. And she's a Tai Chi and Wing Chun practitioner and instructor. And I, as you probably know, am a fan of woodworking. So she and I get into some pretty geeky territory about how on earth do you actually make a wooden training dummy thing when (laughs) you're basically trying to turn something that's about a foot in diameter and about three and a half feet long on some kind of lathe so if the intersection of woodworking and swordsmanship is of interest to you as how could it not be it's fascinating then don't miss next week's episode subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from and if you have a minute please do rate the show or even leave a review and of course share this episode with whoever you think may find it interesting every little helps so thanks for listening and I will see you next week you